very welcome to the Firm and Fast Golf Podcast. I'm your host, Shane Darby. During the various COVID lockdowns, my beach walks on Port Marnock's Velvet Strand were more often than not wild away listening to Australian golf-related podcasts. Titles such as I Seek Golf, The Good Good Golf Podcast, The State of the Game, and The Thing About Golf may ring a bell for some of you. You may also recognise names such as John Huggan, Mike Clayton, Jeff Shackelford, Jimmy Emanuel, Rod Murray, and of course Adrian Logue. If Rod Murray is banana number one in these endeavours, banana number two is most certainly a gentleman called Adrian Logue, who I'm very pleased to welcome to today's episode. In addition to assuming co-hosting duties with Rod on the Good Good Golf podcast adventure, Adrian is also the Chief Information Officer for GolfLink, the national computerised handicapping network that links all Golf Australia affiliated golf clubs and their members. Adrian originally hails from Maitland in the Hunter Valley in New South Wales, but now resides in Ultimo, under the shadow of the Anzac Bridge, not too far away from Sydney Harbour. Mr Logue is one of the main conspirators responsible for the fact that I'm doing this pod, a self-confessed golf course architecture fan, occasional writer, Australian golf magazine course writer, commentator on golf-related logos, and a prolific photographer of golf courses to boot. In other words, just the sort of guest profile that fits the bill here at Firm and Fast. After talking him up like that, we'll have to see if he stands mustard to the introduction. Many thanks for tuning in. We do hope you enjoyed the episode. Well, Adrian, it's great to finally have you on. How's the spring coming together in Sydney? I understand you've had quite a wet winter. Has it finally stopped raining? Thanks, Shane. Yeah, it's cleared up a little bit here. We've just started to get a bit warmer weather. We're into like the 20s in Celsius these days, which is the only proper way to measure the weather. And uh, it's there's a lot less rain and things are starting to dry up. It's But apparently there's another El Nino event coming for our coastline. So we're going to get a lot more rain apparently, but... You know, we're, we're just enjoying a little bit of sunshine while we can at the moment. Good. We'll get the gumboots uh, dusted back out uh, just to be prepared for that properly. <laughs> just wondering, Adrian, if just for listeners that don't know who you are, perhaps you could give us a quick introduction to who Adrian Logue is. Sure. Well, I'm a software developer, which uh, is maybe a bit of a stretch for a golf podcast, but I've, I'm lucky enough to be doing most of my software development in the golf industry. So. I work mostly in handicapping in Australia. That would probably be news to a lot of people who listen to the podcast that I do, which is the Good Good podcast with Rod Morrie. We don't really talk about that stuff much and other stuff that I do writing for Golf Australia magazine or just taking photos and putting them on Twitter and Instagram. I, I've managed to get a career in golf through software development and I've, I've tried to sort of take advantage of that where I can to make everything I do about golf. <laughs> I've, had, I've had these opportunities presented to me through my work and I've, I've managed to explore other areas of golf as a result of that. And I think that's where most people probably come across me is, is through photos on Twitter or uh, the podcast that I do with Rod. You know, I haven't given you advance notice on this. I did play golf with a good friend of mine in uh, Royal Dublin yesterday and he heard that I was having uh, somebody on uh, from GolfLink and he was interested to know if you can answer this question. But in terms of the implementation of WHS in Australia, obviously you guys, I think, were probably 12 months or so ahead of us, if you like, in, in Ireland and the UK. And 
My friend was keen to understand how, generally speaking, has the implementation of WHS from a golfer's perspective uh, in Australia been seen? Hmm. I, I think, I mean, I, this is one of those things you're never going to please everybody and no matter what I say, there'll be, there'll be people who have issues with it and, uh, and that's, that's impossible to overcome. But what I would say about Australia is that uh, Australia was involved and saw to it that we were involved in the lead up to the WHS in, in ways that enabled us to prepare the country quite well for what we knew was coming. And I, I think of all of the countries in the world, the changes that were required to the Australian system were less than what was required in other countries. We already had the rolling sample, for example, the 8 of 20 um, to determine your handicap index. Whereas obviously in the UK, it was a much more dramatic change going from the incremental method to the rolling sample. We had already introduced slope ratings and, and also a daily rating as well based on conditions of the day. So a lot of those elements of the handicap system were already familiar to Australian golfers. And the changes that we needed to make to the systems were still pretty substantial, but the public had been, I think, well prepared compared to the change in a lot of other countries. In America, you might imagine that the change wasn't so great there, but in fact, the change was pretty profound for Americans, mainly because they they had to start getting their, their rounds in the same day. That was pretty big change to the culture of golf in America in order to calculate the, the PCC, um, the playing conditions calculation. So you know, again, that was something we're very used to doing in Australia, getting all the rounds in the same day and getting handicapped the same day. Whereas in America, you know, you were getting handicapped, I think it was every two weeks or something. And the UK had the big change from the incremental method to the rolling sample. So, yeah, uh, Australian, the Australian golfing public was pretty well prepared. And the communications from Golf Australia were, I, I think, very good in the lead up to it. So, And we were able to go live, as you said, as one of the first in the world to go live with it. I think maybe one or two smaller jurisdictions in the US went live sooner, but not not as comprehensively as we did in Australia, where the centralised system went live across the whole country in one go in January 2020. So, yeah. Yeah, two follow-up questions, and sorry, I'm bringing this conversation immediately down a rabbit hole. I think what my mate was getting at was there's a feeling over here, certainly in Ireland, that the lower handicap golfer seemed to get lower between the old system and the new system. And perhaps the weaker golfer or the higher handicap golfer seem to get higher. So I think his question was really in terms of equity. But how does that happen in terms of obviously what he's really talking about is not him particularly, but there's a general feeling that it's more difficult for the better golfer with the lower handicap to actually win a competition versus the higher handicapper who has his day and has maybe a few shots to spare as well because of WHS. Well, I do know that. The mathematicians, um, I, I worked reasonably closely with some of the mathematicians and, and actuaries and things who were involved from all countries in the formulation of the rules. And that consideration was definitely a part of or a significant factor in the final set of calculations that we came up with. So equity in competition fields was a really important factor across all handicap buckets, if you like. So th there's plenty of historical data that was used to model how the new system would perform and what impact it would have on people's handicaps and what 
impact it would have on their position in fields. So I, I, I trust in that somewhat. The modelling was different for every country, though, because of you know, the system that you're coming from determined where, which direction the handicaps were going to move for the most part. In, in Australia, the major change for us was there's, there's this factor that goes into, or that used to go into the rolling sample um, where we used to multiply this, it was called, used to be called this bonus for excellence. We used to multiply that into the, the rolling sample. But that got taken out of that and it got put into the daily handicap calculation. So your handicap indexes in Australia tended to go up by a little bit, but your daily handicaps tended to come back down. So the net change for Australian golfers was mostly insignificant in terms of what they ended up playing off. But and in other countries, that effect would have been different. But I know all the countries did do modelling of, of what that effect would be, and it, it came out. There was no surprises with what it came out at. It was There was a lot of intent to that. And the benefit that UK golfers, I think, would get from the new system is that it's a much faster-moving average. So the incremental method used to take quite a long time and a lot of golf to align with your underlying skill level. Or the, the tenet of the handicap system is that it, it needs to align with your best form. And uh, the old system, it could take quite a while to get there, no matter what direction you're moving in, moving down or moving up, whereas the new rolling sample moves a lot quicker. And align, within 20 rounds, you've basically got a whole new handicap. So it stays current with your, your form a lot better. Just one final question on what you mentioned there in relation to PCC, so the playing conditions calculation, should yep. I say. Would you believe in two years of operating off the new system, I believe? I've never seen a PCC. It's never, it's never been non-zero. Yeah. And, and, and we have, I have played in challenging conditions, I can assure you, which presumably the PCC is meant to reflect. Yeah, that's right. It's designed to be conservative. It doesn't take effect that often, but that was by design. And again, that comes from the modelling that was done. So... It is what it is with that. It's, it's, you know, I think for the introduction of that where most golfers around the world hadn't experienced a daily rating before, erring on the conservative side was probably the right call. Okay. Okay. So no, nothing, nothing amiss if I haven't seen PCC in action yet? No. No, it's not, not that unusual. Thank God. <laughs> Look, we'll, uh, we'll get into the, the, the meat of, of why we have you here um, and just want to sort of maybe dip our toes initially into golf course architecture and ask you what you remember about your first steps in golf. Yeah, uh, taking up golf. I mean, I, was, I think it was pretty typical. I, I was a kid. I grew up thinking like a lot of kids. I, I grew up in a little town in New South Wales called Maitland. Actually, not such a little town. It's probably about the third biggest city in New South Wales, but... I, I think, like most kids, I thought I was meant to play footy and uh, golf wasn't like a tough enough sport for a kid growing up in, in Maitland. But I never really warmed to footy. I was a mad keen cricketer. I loved cricket and uh, I wish I could still play cricket after school, but it's, it's just a very time-consuming sport. But I avoided golf until I was about 10. I guess that's you know about the right age to take up golf anyway, but... I could have started golf a lot earlier, but I, because my dad was a very keen golfer, he was captain of the golf club at Maitland, and um, would have would have loved me to take the game up earlier. But I, I think I avoided until I was about ten, thinking 
I needed to um, force myself to play footy, but I never really warmed to that. I did play a lot of rugby in high school, um, which you'd appreciate. I know you're a very keen <laughs> rugby player yourself. Retired, um, admittedly, but... <laughs> and I played right through high school. But I just, I just didn't like getting hurt. Uh, <laughs> so um, golf was my sport when I, when I found it. And um, uh, my dad used to try to expose me to golf, take me to caddy for him. But, you know, I think like a lot of kids, I was just too small and weak to carry his bag around 18 holes. So dad ended up used to push me, like I'd sit on the bag and he'd push me up the hills on the trolley. Um, But uh, I think we were still having a good time being out there. And it wasn't until my mum went out for a game of golf, which I think is something that mum and dad set up. Mum went out for her first game of golf in must have been 20 years and, and said I should come out as well. And like anybody, I, I hit a good one and that was it. It sent some sort of electric signal to my brain that said, do more of that. And I, I actually still remember the shot that did it to me. <laughs> it was 16th hole at Maitland. I was about 120 short of this creek that crosses the, the fairway and I probably I got one airborne that went about 100 metres. So I was a perfect layup and then I dumped the next one in the creek. But I was, that was, it was it. I was hooked at that point. Yeah, from listening to you on uh, Good Good and previously the I Seek Golf podcast, um, I understand that your uh, your dad did a bit of travelling with, with golf, uh, maybe with work as well. Um, I'm just wondering what your early memories hearing about the wonders of the Melbourne Sandbelt from your, your dad are. <laughs> yeah, dad used to go on golf trips with some of his mates from Maitland and one of the trips they always used to savour was going to Melbourne and playing some of the great golf courses there. And he'd come back telling me about it and I couldn't really wrap my head around what he was telling me. Maitland is a big sort of country course on a big piece of land with big rolling hills and but it's all clay based and it's it's just it is what it is. Like the grasses are just what's there and they get mown and if trees are growing then they just grow and you don't do much with the course. Every now and then they get in and like try and remodel a green in an awkward way or something. But there was no thought of architecture at Maitland. It was just you played the course as it was, as it was presented to you. And you could tell that there wasn't some mind that you were doing battle with that had come up with what you were presented with. The, the hand of the author wasn't visible at a place like Maitland. So when Dad came back talking about some of the, the golf he played in Melbourne, I, I didn't, I just didn't understand what he was talking about. He, he's saying that, you know, there's this hole at Royal Melbourne, the sixth, where you're presented with this challenge where you, the further right you go, the easier shot into the green. Like if you take on more of this corner, but there's more risk that you take on there. And I, I, I was like, oh, okay, I, I guess that's kind of like the, you know, the seventh at Maitland, you know, there's a bit of an angle there if you're over on the left he goes yeah yeah that's that's right you know it's he's he's like that's that's what it's all about but then there's other factors and the slope and then there's uh you know the whole golf course is based on sand as well so there's bunkers everywhere because all you do is you dig and there's sand and (laughs) i couldn't i just couldn't understand that i uh i knew sand from the beach at newcastle but i didn't know you could grow grass on sand the the whole concept was (laughs) bizarre to me i was like how do you have a golf course on sand i just couldn't work it out and I was like 10, so <laughs> that was excusable. I That's think. allowed. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, so the geography is just something I couldn't wrap my head around, the, the geology and geography of it. 
but you know, I did get to play at Newcastle Golf Club, which a lot of listeners would know of because it, it's you know somewhat world famous. Rand Morissette calls it one of the custodians of the game. I think it's in that list of his, the custodians of the game. And Rand Morissette was a member there when he lived in Australia. He used to travel from Sydney just to play at Newcastle. And it's, uh, it is a, you know, it's a great golf course. And I think seeing that for the first time, I started to understand, oh, there's, there's more to this game than just striking the ball and seeing what you can score. There's a whole, a little set of holes at Newcastle, the fifth, the sixth, and the seventh, which are among, is probably one of the best back to back series of holes in Australia. And I do recall the first time I played the fifth, you go over a little rise and there's a pretty good reveal of this sort of corkscrew fairway that goes down to a, a green that's set in a very pretty little corner of the golf course. And you play that, it's a very challenging shot. And I remember getting through that hole and looking back and turning to dad and saying that was pretty good there's nothing like that at Maitland and he's like yeah yeah there's not (laughs) that's that's one of the most famous holes in Australia and I was like oh okay and I I felt really good that I'd recognized something good in the ground like uh, you know I think a lot of people will look at a hole and uh, this is important why public golfers should get to play good golf architecture even at public courses because it can spark something in your mind. You can realise, oh, this is this is something different to where I normally play. There's there's something interesting here. Somebody has deliberately laid this out in a way that is presenting a certain challenge or presenting certain options. And I, I think I was I was kind of proud of myself for noticing that on the the fifth at Newcastle, and that for me was the little ember of an interest in golf course architecture. And you used the word ember there as opposed to epiphany, yeah. Yeah, because, I, I, you know, you need to, um, I think you need to point yourself at golf course architecture to to really get deeply immersed in it. Um, it's not something that you'll just, that, that you'll just get into through osmosis. I think you need to make a conscious effort to go and immerse yourself in it. An ember isn't quite enough to spark the full fire of passion for golf course architecture, I think. It's, it's enough that you'll start to appreciate good good strategic architecture over a plain sort of boring layout but it's not necessarily enough to truly take an interest and seek to sort of educate yourself and uh, that that for me didn't come till much later yeah like if, if Newcastle created the ember how did you nurture that particular ember or was that a, was that a conscious decision or did it just creep up on you it was definitely a conscious decision with work I had the opportunity to travel around a fair bit and at first I was, the, I was like bag tag Barry. I was like, oh, I want to play here because it's famous and I want to play here. And so I was looking at opportunities to play great golf courses. But then I was thinking to myself, I'm, I'm here. Uh, this shouldn't just be something like a notch in my belt. I should be appreciating this and taking the opportunity to learn about what I'm seeing. And that was when I started to photograph golf courses. I thought, oh, I'm here. Why isn't everybody photographing this? That that was that's always the recurring thought that comes to me when I'm at a place like you know Portrush or or Portmarnock or somewhere. I'm, I'm thinking to myself, how isn't the whole field like got a camera out and taking photos of this? And you know, not if not for anything else, just for their own benefit to remember what they're seeing, but also to um, to to put that out there and 
and see what people think of it and you know express your own opinion see what people think back and take that feedback on and start a bit of a dialogue about it and understand and and develop your learning that way um so for me that that evolution and into immersing myself in a golf course architecture came from having the opportunity to play a few good places but then realizing i don't just want to play this and and move on i, I want to understand what i've seen and the photography i think was the way in if I remember correctly, again, hearing you on with uh, Rod Murray on the Good Good Golf Podcast, in the dim and distant recesses of my memory, I seem to remember that you were recently involved on a walkabout at your home club in Pimble in Sydney with none other than our mutual friend Mike Clayton and perhaps some committee members. Just interested to understand how the visit materialised and perhaps what Mike said was it a catalyst for the subsequent development of a master plan with the designer James Wilshire, who I understand has done some recent work for you on the course of Pimble? Uh, yeah, so, well, I mean, listeners might not know Pimble. It's not, not a household name, but it's a, you know, sort of a very typical Sydney parkland course in the North Shore. No architectural masterpiece by any means, but it's a very nice place to be. It's very pretty. You get it. Like, it's like, oh, it's, it's, it's nice. It's pretty. It, you know, you're playing through a pretty environment. But, you know, at the same time, you realise it, it's not at its potential. And its potential is quite good. Like, it, it's it's on a very varied piece of land, a lot of rolling hills and interesting landforms. But it's choked out by trees and there's a lot of clutter. And it's also a very small property. And in a lot of ways, that, that embodies Sydney parkland golf on clay in particular. And Mike Clayton had you know, always sort of had a bit of a go at me for like, oh, you know, what, <laughs> there's no there's no good golf around there or something. It's like, oh, why don't you come have a look and, you know, see if we can make it better because nobody had really shown much of an interest in improving parkland golf in Sydney until Tom Doak came and did Concord. There are a lot of local uh, architects doing uh, the odd bit of work here and there, like, redoing a hole here or there or adding a hole or very minor rerouting or some green complexes or something like that. But then we had that, that project with Tom Doak and then uh, Harley Cruz redid Kalara, which is another course, very similar sort of style of course to Pimble. And both of those projects have vastly improved the golf at those two courses, Concord and Kalara. So at round about that time, interest in improving that area of golf in Sydney I think was pretty high. And when Clates was up here for uh, the senior pro-am at Kalara, I think it was, coincidentally, I said, oh, why don't you come up to Pimble and we can have a little walk around. So it was actually, it was just me and Clates had a walk around. Oh, the captain might have came out and said good day because um, I just gave them a heads up that he was coming. And uh, we're walking around. Um, my main memory of it was he said, you know, he said, looked around and said, oh, you know, there's 12 good holes here the potential for 12 good holes and I, I said oh wow 12 so 12 good holes and six average holes he goes no 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 just 12 good holes in the whole property <laughs> so, <laughs> so that was that was a bit of a blow um unsurprisingly though he had a, a very good recollection of most of the holes and i don't think he'd played there since the 1970s there was like a new south wales pga or something there in the 1970s that he played in and he but he still had a pretty good recollection of the routing and the hole numbers and what each hole was about. Uh, his main bit of feedback was that 
you know, it needs to declutter. They're just vegetation management, mowing lines, getting rid of coarse furniture and gardens and things like that. Um, that was his, his main bit of feedback. Yeah, I do remember he saw, uh, as we were walking around, we saw one of the better golfers on the course. Uh, I said, oh, I said to Clay, that guy's off, like he's off scratch, actually. He's one of the better golfers in the club. And Clay said, oh, is he? Okay, call him over. <laughs> and as he's walking over, Clayton, he, he whispers to me, he goes, I'm going to ask him a question. His answer's going to be faster greens and consistent sand in the bunkers. <laughs> and the guy comes over and he goes, so you, what would you do to improve this course? <laughs> and the guy, he thinks for a minute, he goes, oh, oh, it'd be good if the greens were a bit faster and, you know, if there was consistent sand in the bunkers. And Clayton just, thank you. Go away now. <laughs> so he started to walk away. And it, like, Point proven. <laughs> really loud so the guy could still hear. He goes, see what I mean? See? <laughs> That's really ang- he was angry. He was genuinely angry. Um, and uh, anyway, the guy walked away going, what was that encounter? I don't, I don't know if you yeah. recognize Mike Clayton. But yeah. um, uh, that was it was quite funny. But And as you say, now this that didn't lead to James Wilshire's engagement. Um, I, don't, I don't think Clayton's or... OCM or Clayton Design were even invited to tender um, at Pimble in the end, uh, but there was a there was a tender process and which uh, was won by James Wilshire, who's a, a local architect. Um, that that was one of the main criteria for the club that they wanted somebody local, and uh, he's going through and doing a master plan at the moment and um, taking a couple of holes out of play at a time and um, working through the whole thing. The club centenary is in a couple of years and they want the whole thing redone. 18 new greens, 18 new tees, all the new bunkers uh, by 2024 sometime. So that's Sweet. that's underway and there's been some there's been some work done on that already which I've posted a little bit about. But I'd like to just jump into the podcasting sphere with you for a little while. As we mentioned earlier, you're the regular co-host to Rod Murray on the Good Good Golf podcast. Am I correct in saying you've been podcasting with Rod for the last five years or so? Yeah, I think it would have been around 2015, 2016 that we started. I was obviously working for GolfLink, the national handicap system, around that time. And the website, a lot of people will remember golflink.com.au was actually sort of the biggest golf website in Australia at the time as well. And we had a editorial team, which Rob was a part of. You know, we had videographers and writers and social media people and the whole thing. And uh, Rod was a part of that. So we'd see each other around the office and we spent a lot of time together. I was often at the tournaments, like in a capacity sort of running the website or the live scoring at tournaments. So I was in the tent in the media centre and we just were spending a lot of time together. And uh, I'm not sure quite how we fell into doing a podcast. It was initially the I Seek Golf podcast, as I think you mentioned, and that became the Good Good Golf podcast. But I think at Initially, at least, it was mostly Rod being just nice to me to let me on <laughs> the podcast with him. But, you know, we've got, I think, pretty good chemistry and hopefully some people find it interesting. The, what, we're not that interested in building a big audience for the podcast, which is probably pretty obvious from some of the subject matter we go into. In, in that way, we find the audience selects itself and... If we're if we're losing listeners every episode, we feel like we're probably doing the right thing because we're we're culling the field down to the people who are really, really interested in it. Um, so we try to cover 
topics that aren't typical of a lot of golf podcasts. You know, we don't do a lot of tour talk, although we have some guests regularly who are world experts in that, like John Huggan or you know, Clates as well. But we try and cover other topics like public golf and equality and sustainability and some other issues like that. So that tends to be... Each episode we put out tends to put a bunch of people off, which we're fine with. At the end, we can probably fit the whole listenership in this room here in, in Sydney Podcast Studios, and that, that'd be great. <laughs> Mate, you're very self-deprecating. It's, uh, it's, I'm sure your listenership is an awful lot bigger than, than, than how you've presented it there. But you're going for the reverse funnel, basically. Uh, you're, you're looking yeah. to kick people out <laughs> as opposed to get people in. So doing your job successfully, potentially by definition and by extension, means that you have no listeners at the end of it. <laughs> that, that's right. Well, that's the goal. <laughs> we'll get down. I mean, we don't, we're not, we've got no sponsors. Uh, we, we don't do it for money. We do it because we enjoy catching up with each other each week, or even though we've been a little bit inconsistent doing it from week to week recently. But we enjoy chatting with each other. And it's as much as anything, it's an excuse to hang around and have a coffee together afterwards and, um, and catch up. So um, we'll, we'll continue doing that. Those listeners will, will know that... Well, may know that Rod's studio has moved. Has the coffee got any better as a result of the move, Adrian? Oh, great question. Um, yeah, the, the, well, the walk from the station to get up to this studio is significantly better. It's just a gentle sort of uphill par four, short, mm-hmm. short par four. It's probably driving a nine-nine. And it's also like a reasonably level piece of pavement and everything. People don't understand just what a horror show it was walking across the highway over this rough ground and like through building sites and stuff to get to his old place. And then it was this dark, danky building that really looked like it should be demolished and is probably going to get demolished in the next year or so. It was was just a horror. It was like walking through the seven circuits of hell, the seventh circuit of hell or something. Whereas now it's just this gentle walk up a quiet street. And I really approve of that. Coffee-wise, it's no good. It's terrible around here. There's nothing, no redeeming any coffees around here. So I, I get like the most deplorable coffee these days like a hazelnut cappuccino with sugar in it or something because that masks so many evils it's it's a caffeinated beverage in the loosest definition of the word but even the most inept barista ends up making something that's palatable because it just tastes like some sugary hazelnut thing by the end of that so if i trust the barista then i'll I'll order something nice but um like an espresso or or, or something like that. But if, if, I'm, if I'm ordering a hazelnut cappuccino, that's a signal to you that you've, got, you've done the wrong okay. thing. That you're, you're no good. You haven't, yeah. Interestingly, the ISG of the Oxy Golf Podcast is still available through Spotify, all 20, 120-odd episodes for anyone that wants to go back and, and, and take, a, take a look if they haven't, haven't tuned in. Uh, I think you've got about 116 or 117 on the Good Good Golf Podcast. Looking at the back catalogue, between both ISG and Good Good. What's been your favourite episode so far? And why Hmm. is it your favourite? Good question. Um, Probably the the best Good Good podcast we did was probably with Billy Foster, which I wasn't on. Um, (laughs) We we actually won an award for that. Um, But I wasn't on it. I enjoyed it enormously as a listener. I think it was a great podcast, Billy Foster. That was the one with Tony Tony Johnston as well, yeah. Correct. Yeah, Tony Johnston, Billy Foster, and uh, Mike Clayton might have been on it as well. Yeah. 
yeah, anyway, I, I wasn't on it. I was, I think I was traveling or something that week, but, and it might be saying something that we won an award for that one that I wasn't on. And our <laughs> listener numbers on that far outweighed anything else. But it was more about the stories Billy Foster told, which was superb. And I'd encourage everyone to go back and listen to that one. Brandel Chambly we had on the I Seek Golf podcast once. And thinking back on that's a bit surreal. Uh, I don't know why he agreed. I think we, Rod might have gotten into a debate with him on uh, rollback or something and how it's destroying golf course architecture. And he, he, he liked that it was quite a civil debate online. And so I think he thought, well, you can, I can have a normal conversation with these guys. It won't be too confrontational which you would not expect from Randall Chambly, but he, he came on. I, it may not have been a very good listen, but it was certainly surreal to have Randall Chambly on there talking for, a, well, we probably spoke for about an hour and a half about all sorts of stuff. And I, I remember thinking I was really impressed with his research and the depth of his knowledge on golf course architecture. There's no, there's no doubt he's, he was extremely nice to us as well um, before and after the podcast off air. So yeah, that was, he was a great guest. I don't know if it was a great podcast. I have no memory if it was a good podcast, but he was a good guest. Alec, it has to be said at this time that any time you have either Meg McLaren or John Huggin on, how good are they? Yeah, Meg, Meg McLaren's great. I find her fascinating from the writing perspective, obviously, but there's a meta sort of aspect to that that I found interesting or that I find continue to find interesting, which is to explore her motivation for why she writes. There's a quote that I heard which... I think it's it's something like you can become a better thinker if you become a better writer, and I don't, I don't know who said that quote. It's probably Mark Twain. Every unattributed quote's Mark Twain, right? But I think that sums up Meg pretty well. She seems to write to clarify ideas for herself, and I think that produces pretty good writing. If anybody tries that, I think that's a good way to to produce something interesting is to have the the kernel of an idea. And then to clarify it for yourself, start writing it. And then that leads to the second part, which is you become a better thinker by becoming a better writer. So that's the topic I always enjoy exploring when we have Meg McLaren on. But also she's just very interesting as an elite athlete, pretty successful tour player these days. And it's interesting to hear the challenges that that she has because she's very forthright about explaining the challenges of life on tour and uh, I think that's fascinating in itself and that's the subject of much of her writing of course I'm going to date this recording sorry Rod if you're listening <laughs> um, she uh, she lost in the playoff yesterday in the French Open I think I'm that's right French Open it. yep so uh, we had our first um, first Moroccan winner um, on the LET but uh, oh. make uh, Meg lost in a playoff, unfortunately, but uh, great to see her. Uh, I think Hopefully she'll write about it. Yeah, she certainly will write about it. Yeah, that's, uh, yeah that, that's the fascinating insight. You know, I think a lot of professional golfers get graded on a curve a little bit when they write something. They're, you know, it's like, oh, amazing writer. And so a lot of them, yeah, they're, they're okay. You know, it's, <laughs> but Meg is a genuinely good writer. And whereas I think, uh, you know, some, some professional golfers just get, overly enthusiastic praise just for writing something um it, you know it's a surprise that they can write anything sometimes and and it is a surprise for a number of reasons it, how do they have the time like it's a pretty busy profession that they're on and uh it's all consuming and i wonder again how meg has the energy to write something of such high quality because unless she's just punching that out in one draft it must be a lot of drafting and 
editing and just going over her work to produce what she produces. It, it must be time consuming unless she's like a full blown genius. So, like any, I think writing takes time. Good writing takes time. Yeah, obviously, Mr. Huggan, another uh, pretty uh, established and 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 creative writer. Yeah, Huggy's incredible. He's he's very honest. He's very humble, and he's he's a little bit terrifying. I, I guess we've done uh, maybe I don't know half a dozen episodes with Huggy now, maybe ten or so. I'm not sure. Um, and I've met him in person half a dozen times, and I think through all of that, I've barely made an impression on him. <laughs> um, he's a, a person who's fiercely loyal to his friends and always comes down on the right side of things I think for for the most part like he's, he's I, I'm not somebody who I, I need guidance often to come down on the right side of things I, I think my initial instincts on stuff is on whatever the issue is I'm often not sure where you know because I, I look at things through a lot of different lenses and it all looks very complex to me and I, I have a lot of trouble um, taking a position on anything and so I look to people like Huggy or Clates or Rod to um, not to tell me what to think but to give me a cue to what sort of things I should be focusing my attention on on any given issue and that often leads me to well I, I think they they all come down on the, the right side of history on most issues and I, I look to people like Huggy to give me cues on that yeah, it's a great skill to have, you know. Yeah, it's a great skill to have. I mean, you know, I, I think you know through through both the ISG and the Good Good Pods, you've and, and this is kind of a bone to pick with you somewhat now. You've had a somewhat recurring feature where yourself, Rod, and at least one other guest have reviewed some of the great books, great great golf books, obviously, like The World Atlas of Golf, Jeff Shackleford, Shackleford's Grounds for Golf, Tom Coyne's A Course Called Scotland. My favourite episode, obviously, would must must be the Alistair McKenzie Spirit of St Andrews episode, which you uh, bad recording, but which you've replayed twice, and it gets more fascinating every single time you listen listen to it. The book clubs disappeared, Adrian. Where did it go, and when is it coming back? Uh, I'd like to blame Rod, but it's definitely my fault. I think I'm I'm just lazy. I mean, I read a lot, but mostly audio books these days, so I tend to stall a little bit when I've got to read. A paper book, and we we uh, announced that we're going to do Weathered and Simpson, the architectural side of golf, which is a great a great book. Um, but I just never applied myself to reading it, so it was waiting on me to read it, <laughs> and I still haven't read. I've got my copy. I've been I've, I'm a good way through it, but I just find other stuff distracting me all the time, and I, I just do find it really hard to get into a paper based book. And that's very dense. The text in that book is very dense and quite long. But if I ever get through that, we'll probably do that one. <laughs> we'll get it up and going again. But, you know, there is a decent back catalogue there. The, my favourite as well is probably the, the Spirit of St Andrews podcast that we did with Clates. That was a great day too. Rod and I drove down. We had a fancy car that we had access to through some sponsorship with Golflink and we drove down to Royal Canberra that day in this fancy car. And uh, we just had it was an enjoyable drive. We stopped by for a pie down on the way and then met up with Clates at Royal Canberra. He's walked into the clubhouse like he owned the place. Um, and uh, he's, he's just like, it was thoroughly, he was thoroughly Clates that day. <laughs> we've, we've taken out our copies of the book and of course Clates had some beautiful bound edition and Rod and I are just there with these flimsy soft covers 
with stupid notes sort of attached to it and Clates has got beautiful bookmarks and so, yeah, uh, all the right passages ready to go and knew a bunch of it off the top of his head. And we did the recording and then we walked around Royal Canberra, which Clates had had a hand in redesigning with OCCM at the time. And uh, that, that alone is, is a great experience. Everyone, if, if you could sell that experience of walking around a golf course from the 1st to the 18th, with Mike Clayton, that that would be worth a fair bit of money, especially a course that he's had a hand in designing and just hearing some of the insights that he has about the place. But it was something, we didn't set it up with Royal Canberra, I think. we just went out and started walking the course. And, of course, he's pointing at stuff and talking loudly and shouting at golfers saying, what are you hitting it there for? Like, you should be hitting it there. <laughs> we walked up on some group and a lady had hit a beautiful shot into, she, if I'm fair, she sculled it a little bit. But it ended up, it was a bit healy and it shaped this shot beautifully into this green where it ran ran in between a couple of bunkers sort of fitting the entrance of the green perfectly. And Clates loved that shot. He's like, oh, that's the perfect shot. And he started, he yelled it out, that's the perfect shot. And then the next bloke was getting ready to play. Do what she did. You just got to do what she did. There's like complete straight. I had no idea who we were, just some crazy people who'd walked onto the golf course. And... <laughs> <laughs> and we're walking down the middle of the fairway. He's, he's yelling at this guy, do what he, do what she did. But, you know, we went out the whole course. I think a couple of people might have recognised him. But that was it was quite an experience and a really good day. Yeah, well, I mean, your man, Clates, is definitely the embodiment of what you speak of, uh, speak of, should I say, in terms of an eyes-up exponent of golf. I've heard you speak occasionally about your theory of eyes-up versus eyes-down golf. It's a very interesting theory that I'd like to explore with you in a little greater detail. How would you differentiate between eyes up and eyes down players? Yeah, um, I, I'm. People might be surprised by this, um, but I'm not particularly fussy about where I play. I think the experience of playing golf is pretty similar almost anywhere you are. Like I, I you know, at the weekend I played on Saturday. I played my usual game at Pimble, and like I said, Pimble's a really nice place to be. It's it's very pretty, and you've, I've got my friends there, and. It's a sort of a great experience architecturally. It's okay. Uh, nothing outstanding. It's maybe a Doke 4, Doke 5. Doke 4. It's definitely a Doke 4. But it's a nice place to be. And it's it's not a cheap membership. I, but then Sunday, I, the next day, I went and played Marrickville Golf Club, which is a very ordinary golf course, but has a lot of interesting features. And I, I was thinking to myself, I was... I was playing with Jimmy Emanuel, who's been on the podcast. And I, I turned to Jimmy and said, you know, the experience of playing here is like 95% the same as playing at Pimble or the Australian or anywhere else in Sydney, really. Because you're still looking down at a ball with a lie and you're hitting the ball and it, the, the mechanics of hitting the ball is kind of the same. And the shots at Marrickville, this might sound outrageous, but the shots at Marrickville are asking much the same sort of questions as most of the shots at most golf courses that you play and you know there's still a target and there's different dimensions to the golf shot to deal with like it's not at even the most uninteresting golf course the experience of playing golf is still i think like 95 percent similar to playing anywhere it's it's always nice to walk around a pretty environment though but that pretty environment is subject to you know, what's, what's pretty and this is where you're starting to get into the look up look down sort of thing uh, like I'm, you know, I'm not fussy about where I play but 
I think there's much more to golf than hitting a golf ball and making a score because if that's your measure of enjoyment of golf, then you're setting yourself up for disappointment. So I look to extract enjoyment from golf or, or for things to hold my interest in golf beyond what I shoot because, again, I know from working in handicapping that most people will get to a certain handicap and, and that's where they're going to level off for most of their life. So if their enjoyment of golf is measured by their handicap, they're going to be, they're going to be disappointed. You'll have good days and bad days, but I can tell you statistically how many good days and bad days you're going to have, basically, if, if you stay on the same handicap. So you've got to look for other stuff, and that's where you look up. And, and at Marrickville, there's, when you look up, there was plenty of stuff that held my interest. I found lots of fascinating stuff, lots of really pretty little spots around the golf course, and, and if I'm honest, lots of really interesting architectural features as well and you know, an interesting piece of land for a golf course that nobody would give any note to. But, but I, you know, I enjoyed it. I think it's something to enjoy in every golf course. Do you think that your, your data-driven perspective, if you like, on the game assists you or certainly assists you in, in making that differentiation between a, a wider enjoyment of the game, both obviously from a competitive perspective, but also keeping the eyes up and having a look around and that you know that actually it's, a f- it's, it's, pretty, it's, it's a folly, if you like, if you let your enjoyment of the day be directly related to what your score is yeah not a folly because i think that's a legitimate way to enjoy golf and everybody mm-hmm. should enjoy golf however they enjoy it and i'm i'm not a monster like i enjoy shooting a good score <laughs> um and i i genuinely enjoy during the course of a day feeling like you know the the, the gamble is sort of i think it's a motivation that spurs golfers on it's like next shot is going to be a good one I think that's a factor in every golfer's psyche that keeps them going, sustains them, is you know, what's going to happen on the next shot. It, what, you know, I'm going to roll the dice again and putting a bad shot behind you um, and you know, can all, my day can turn around on the next shot. I'm all for that as well, like letting my mood be dictated a little bit by how well I'm playing because I love the feeling of still being in a hole. Like There's nothing worse than... Just having, just throwing a hole away on your first shot or something, where you know you're guaranteed there's nothing, nothing to play for left in the next, you know, ten minutes or however long it's going to take you to play the hole. There's nothing worse than that feeling. Even if you've hit a poor tee shot, if there's an opportunity for recovery and you're still in a hole, if you think your way out of the situation you put yourself in, I think that's something that's really an, an enjoyable aspect of the game. I, I like that, and and that I think directly relates to scoring. But you know you can get you can drive that same enjoyment from match play, um, and maybe more so because you're never really are you ever really out of a hole in match play. I suppose you are. You can you can dump a couple in the water. But it's only a hole, so that's right. The roll of the dice occurs st- again straight away. Everything's reset. That's uh, right. On, on the next tee, which is I guess ultimately it's eighteen individual little matches. Yeah, yeah, by, that's right. By eighteen holes, kind of thing. So I, I'm not one to say. I think it's a additive thing to look up and enjoy other aspects of golf so that's where you know you notice paths or vegetation management or course furniture (laughs) things like that and start to form opinions on those things or you know the transitions from greens to tees or just the way a whole golf course is themed or the vistas that you see or the way the whole thing's tied in from a shaping point of view i think all of those are aspects of golf that are accessible to anybody if if you want to access it those are extra things that you can enjoy on top of having a score. 
Look, that's very much a, an exploration of a, a more holistic eyes-up approach, as you say, in terms of appreciating the great game of golf. I've had a thought to myself now, maybe miles off, but it certainly it, it, I think it feeds into your eyes-up theory. Originally in uni, I studied marketing, and I've held a number of positions over the years in the wider golf space, specifically in relation to marketing. In quieter moments, I often wonder wh whether many golf clubs and facilities appear not to fully understand how best to, to, to market their offerings. Golf is obviously an unusual product in that it's experiential, it's perishable, and I kind of think that the traditional view of committees and, and, and professional staff and lots of the stuff in relation to golf is very much on the, the four P's, if you like, a product, price, place, and promotion. I'd like to posit a suggestion that as a direct result of where golf sits in the tangible, intangible continuum, the utilization of the seven P's which are associated with services market can possibly be considered as a better measure. As we said, the four P's are product, price, place, and promotion. When you append the seven P's idea, it actually adds in processes, physical evidence, and people to the aforementioned four. Do you think there's any veracity to what I've just said there? I think you've got a background in marketing, don't you? You've studied marketing. Mm -hmm. I I haven't, uh, but I've been. I, I've just I've worked in a lot of environments where marketing's been an important part of the work. As I said, I'm, I'm a software developer, and for a lot of that time, I had my own business, my own consultancy, where I worked across all sorts of industries, not just golf, in finance and publishing and all sorts of things, and all of those involved software engineering and design and marketing and subject matter knowledge so and I think what I observe in golf is that it's very rare to see those things all intersect I'll, I'll stick to what I know which is the technology side of what you're talking about there and how marketing intersects with technology and and design as well and I think it's very rare in golf and in the way golf clubs present themselves, say, on their website, uh, which is you know, should be a fairly simple piece of technology. But I think it's rare for golf clubs to have a well-engineered website that also has world-class design that also displays good golf IQ. That, that intersection of things is very rare. And when you see it, it stands out. And I think the Masters website... Is, is a fantastic example of where the intersection of all of those things occur, and it happens in the app for the Masters as well, and generally the marketing for the Masters. I actually think their design has a lot you could be critical of, but there are some elements of the design of, of the Masters tournament that is consistent, and their tent poles of their design that they can go to and people recognise that creates a very strong brand. But that They've carried that across very strongly into their digital assets in their app and their website. And their golf IQ also comes across very strongly in those assets. And their engineering is obviously excellent in those assets as well. So you get that, that, those rare examples like that which demonstrate the intersection of all of those things, which make all of the other examples stand out as being deficient in some way. And your average golf course website and how golf markets itself from a website point of view to the experience of going to a golf course falls well short of what it could be or what it should be 
And it's no surprise, really. Golf, most golf clubs are pretty small organisations, right? They're, I think in Australia, we're a little bit more obsessed than most com- countries in making businesses out of golf courses. We have a lot of golf clubs here which have, have a CEO and like a whole sort of management structure and that go beyond the board. You know, there's, there's quite a, a big staff in a lot of golf courses here and they run like businesses with a big food and beverage operation as well as the golf operations. And, you know, they're, they're measured in ways that any business would be measured. But for all of that, they're still not quite big enough organisations generally to have that sophisticated view of their marketing and their design and really awareness of their brand identity. They're, they're still too small for the most part. They're just too small. Even the biggest golf clubs that tend to be too small to really have the skill set in-house to bring all that stuff together really well. The opposite can happen with really small golf clubs where there's a singular vision from like an auteur, if you like. And you see that in startups or in some resorts like a Barnboogle or or Bandon Dunes or something like that where, uh, or, you know, more recently with a Landmand or, or those sort of places where there's uh, a bit of a singular vision and they overcome not necessarily being huge organisations by by having a strong vision and a strong brand. And that translates into a strong brand identity. But, you know, often they still fail with simple things like booking systems so that, you know, the technology is not necessarily world-class. It, it, it's just it's a difficult thing, I think, for golf clubs to to get that mix of stuff right. And it's probably no surprise that an organisation as colossal as Augusta National is the one that has got it right. Also because they're so singular in their their purpose, whereas other big organisations in golf, like the USGA, have many stakeholders across many different areas. And I think they do a great job, but they've got you know everything from agronomy to tournaments and everything in between. There's a lot of stakeholders to manage, a lot of divisions to manage, and it's it's hard to unify the whole brand identity in such a diverse business. And the RNA has a similar challenge, but I think they both do a pretty good pretty good job. All said, so I don't know, uh, golf is made up of so many little businesses that it's probably no surprise that the marketing's so fractured and inconsistent. Yeah, I just I think it's interesting. I mean, the golf product or how it's consumed obviously there are tangible and intangible elements in relation to the experience and i'd probably like to just take a look at a few of the tangible elements maybe i know you've got certain thoughts on paths and rakes and and various other bits and pieces which we'll uh, we'll try and extract out of you as we move through but i'm sort of drawn back to my first experience at New South Wales, as an example, obviously Golf Club in Sydney, was there around 2012. I was in off the streets, so I was paying the full rack, which I was happy to pay. But quite interestingly, I, I actually received a welcome pack for the very first time that I can certainly remember looking back, you know, which, which, which included the New South Wales branded socks, to make sure I wasn't wearing anything other than, uh, other than the, <laughs> the correct height. And, uh, it's a polite color. way of making sure you wear the right socks. Exactly. There you go. There's your... Well, it, you know, to be fair, the, the, other, the other side of that coin is either 
sorry, your socks are wrong, or even worse, you know, you actually make it the first tee and you're up down the first hole and somebody's running after you going, you're wearing the wrong socks. So yeah. I'd rather have the, you know, it, it was a nice touch in that. Obviously, it was quite clear that they wanted you to wear the socks. Obviously, a DVD screensaver, course guide, etc., etc. So because over the years, obviously, I've had similar in Royal Birkdale and, and Monterey and Portugal, you know, something quite nice as a member guest in, in Kingston Heat, that honorary member tag. I just think, you know, little things like that really add to the the value proposition, but also the fact that you're bringing something away with you. You can actually look back at it and remember fondly. I remember the time I was in Birkdale because I had the bloody bag tag on my bag. And, and I think sometimes you know when you're so close to something and you've always done something one way then perhaps it's you know it's it's difficult to separate the wood from the trees to a certain degree and say actually well you know are, are we doing all we can here for both the member from a member's perspective but also the visitor perspective to actually give you know give some thought to what the you know what the visitor or indeed, the particularly the visitor is actually bringing you away with them. Mm. Well, I think yeah, the old course you get a little baggy with a few goodies in it like that, don't you? With a even a course guide, I think there's a course guide in it, and uh, yeah, a pitch mark repair is always good because you know it sends a signal as well that we want you to repair your pitch marks. That that's that's great. I, you know, I think clubs could focus. I, I, I like having a memento. I think a lot of golf is about thinking back and reflecting on your experiences playing golf which gets into this sort of epiphany territory, right? But, yeah, because for me, I like to replay rounds in my head and think about... I think that's how you learn routings as well, is you have to bring yourself back to a round and really force yourself to remember the holes and then replay it over and over again in your head. And little mementos, especially a course guide, can really help with that. So I think that's, that's a nice touch. What clubs could do a lot better, though, is signage. I reckon golf clubs are horrendous for signage like I always compare it to like if you go for a lot of people I mean you've mentioned a lot of sort of private club experiences there where you're probably a golfer already and for golfers that that little bag of goodies is means a lot I think it's a it's a great touch but for a lot of other places you know even private clubs could benefit from this just better signage pointing to like step one go to the pro shop Step two, you know, get a sand bucket. Step three, go to the tee over here. And step four, try to play this hole in under eight minutes. And then off you go. Certainly, you know, Marrickville could really have benefited from that, from the, the round we went there and had a game the other day. Like, I know what to do. I turn up and we know where to go. But I, I was waiting for Jimmy for you know, half an hour before the round and just sitting on a bench outside the pro shop. And I saw plenty of people who, it was clear it was their one game every six months or, and a couple of them I think were bringing complete non-golfers. And you could see they're just like lost. And the, the sign says pro shop. What does that mean to a non-golfer? Like, it's, they, they don't know what a pro shop is. Like, is, is that where you go to pay or something? that We know that, but I, I think if you put your, self in the mind of a non-golfer they're not going to have a clue what pro shop means and that that means you go there check out in the department store says pay here it, it doesn't even say a complex word like check out it says pay here and that you know it's, it's things like that i think golf clubs really let themselves down and become very hostile and intimidating environments just through 
simple stuff like that. If you go 10-pin bowling, which is a great analogy for golf, I think, because it's a sort of activity, unless you're really into 10-pin bowling. The vast majority of people who go 10-pin bowling are probably only doing it as part of some corporate thing or like a Christmas party or it's a one-off thing that they've decided, oh, we've got a free Sunday, let's take the kids 10-pin bowling. And it's a complex sort of transaction. You've got to get those shoes, the stupid shoes that you get, and you've got to pay somebody and then you find a lane and then you've got this weird scoring system that you've got to get your head around. And it's extremely well signed and signposted and you understand every step of the way what you're meant to do and you get through the experience and start having fun. It it sort of gets you straight to the the core of the experience in a self-guided way. And golf is hopeless at that. I know you like a nice path. I'm not quite sure... (laughs) It's a grass path or a cart path or a wooden path or a rutted path or a rustic path. What sort of paths do you like on golf course later? People send me lots of paths. I get DM'd paths all the time. And look, I've, I've posted maybe half a dozen paths and made a comment about them and, and now I'm like this path guy. <laughs> and I, I don't think I've actively posted something about a path for probably five years. People still send me paths or tag me in paths for, uh, on, uh, on Twitter, which I love. Keep doing it. I, I, I enjoy being tagged on paths because I like looking at paths. Um, I'm not quite sure why, but I like looking at paths. But my ideal path is something that is just a worn-out piece of ground that's just formed because it was the, the natural place to walk. And that sounds extremely wanky. But really, what more do you need? Like, you know, it's going to have some seasonal variation. Like, at times, it's going to get a bit dusty or it's going to get a bit muddy might fall away or crumble a bit and it might not be great for carts motorized carts and i think that that's a whole other area which you need to think about but taking motorized carts out of the picture that's my ideal path so just something that is the line of charm that you walk along and it gets worn out and it becomes the place where everybody walks and at certain times of the year, it'll be fully grassed. At other times, it'll just be dusty or muddy or whatever, or rocky, and it is what it is. Um, why do you need to formalise a path beyond that? And what sort of formalising of a path is do I like? I don't know. I, I think you've got to start, like, is it really a high-traffic area? Do you really need to formalise it? Do you have motorised carts at the club? Because I understand, you know, they do wear a course out and you want to direct traffic in certain ways and there's no better way to do that than with a formal path. But what materials do you use? Like, really should be resisting using concrete, but that's the go-to for most courses here in Sydney. I understand it to some extent, like we've got wrong clay here and if we've learnt nothing from the last 12 months of constant rain, it gets very muddy and a golf club is a, a going concern and you want to have the course be playable even in the worst of conditions and you can't have carts tearing up the ground and the turf all over the place and so a cart path can tend to take care of that and selling motorised carts is a decent form of revenue for a lot of courses and I wouldn't want to deny them of that. Um, you know, I think you really have to be sparing in your use of concrete. It just looks awful. It's a permanent scar on, on the golf course. My home club of Maitland, where I used to play as a kid, is... There's concrete paths throughout most of the golf course now. It's probably the major change that I've seen since when I used to play there. And I played thousands of rounds of golf there. And 
never gave the first thought to a path because no part of the golf course was ever really worn out that much, apart from the places where the maintenance crews would, would travel across frequently to get to one part of the course from the, from the other. Those were the only formal sort of gravel paths that we had around the course. But I think the culture of golf at that golf club has turned to... Almost, a lot of the members have their own motorised cart and they park it in the shed at the golf course and go out in individual carts in a group of four. Like, you might have four carts go out. And, yeah, for that course to sustain that culture and keep the membership happy, they've put concrete paths in. And it's not good from a golf point of view. It's not good. It looks terrible. But it you know keeps the course happy and it gives the members what they want, I guess. So that's what golf's become. I just challenge every concrete path I'd see because... You know, maybe it's fine just as gravel or some sort of crushed granite or, you know, you've got some fantastic grass, like maintained fescue paths in, in Ireland and, and Scotland. I think they're very pretty, but they, they can be very fussy looking, like they're like little mini fairways. And it's a beautiful aesthetic, but expensively obtained. And, yeah, I, again, I just question whether it's it's any less beautiful than... A worn-out piece of ground. I think, undoubtedly, there's a functionality to it, um, and it's not that I don't like grass paths; they're they're lovely. But you wonder. There's a bit. Maybe I'm putting too strong of a term on this, but there's a bit of an epidemic of manicured fescue paths over here, particularly on. It strikes me a little bit as conspicuous consumption to a certain degree and keeping up with the Joneses. Um, and yes, it does give a nice flow and bearing in mind all of the things that you said in terms of traffic management and wear points and so on and so forth. But it's mm. almost as if it's, you know, we have to have a grass path because so-and-so down the road has a grass path. It's FOMO to a certain degree. Mm. And you do sometimes wonder, yeah, it's a nice to have, you know, if you look at the cost implications, be it either from an irrigation perspective or a resodding perspective or whatever else it might be, you know, and knowing that these, generally speaking, uh, and I'm sure it does happen occasionally, but you're not hitting golf balls off it. It's really just for foot traffic and, and wheel traffic, if you like. I, I'm just wondering when you weigh things up, if it, it actually, yeah, it, aesthetically it makes sense, but, you know, when you actually look at how much it costs, does it actually make sense over and above using that expenditure somewhere else? Yeah, for sure. You've got to know what you're getting into. Even with a con- well, concrete paths, maybe in particular, they're expensive to maintain because they can look horrendous after they crack up for a, a while. And, and it's very expensive to, to patch up a concrete path. And then you've got a patchwork path, which looks horrendous. Um, so, you know, a concrete path looks great for you know, a year maybe until it starts to crack and then it needs to be patched and then you've got, it becomes this multicoloured nightmare and then you get another committee that comes in and goes, oh, we're going we're gonna to patch this piece of path with some of that, that rubber stuff, that rubber composite over the top of the concrete because that'll look better. But they're not doing the whole path. They're just doing this bit which is crumbled apart and in, again, you've got this weird patchwork and it's expensive, really expensively obtained bad look. So the fescue paths, at least that's an expensively obtained good look. But yeah, I think clubs should be aware of what they're getting into with that. You know, the question I'd ask is, it's another thing on the course that can break. If, you've, if you're setting up a perfect path, 
it's something that the moment it, there's an imperfection introduced into it, it becomes an eyesore. So your beautiful fescue path gets worn out a little bit in the middle. It draws attention to it. And the beauty of an informal path is that it's already broken, if that makes sense. There's nothing to fix. It's already broken. And it's beautiful in its broken state. It's, it's just, a, just a rough place where people walk. And a formal fescue path introduces something else that can break. And like literally large parts of the golf course, like it's a very new maintained area that you introduce into the golf course, which people will complain about if it's got a problem. So yeah, that, you're buying into that as well when you're, when you're introducing those, those wonderful fescue paths. But I've seen I've seen ones with graded rough on the fescue paths as well. It's a, it's taking a bit extreme, isn't it? It's and it's utilitarian as a result. It's not trying to be something that it's not or pretending to be something else. Um, and as you say, it doesn't. It needs to be maintained, but it doesn't need to be maintained aggressively or or or, or with a lot of expense. You know. Yeah, and look, it could wash away. That can be a problem. Like if you start to semi-formalize a path with a bit of gravel or something gravel can wash away i get that and that's that's where i think you know high traffic areas you might need to stabilize the base with some sort of matrix or something and you know that that's fine like especially alongside a teeing area or something like that just let let it play out and see where the problem areas are and then go formal where you need to go formal but at every step just question that don't don't as a like dogmatic policy put paths in next to every tee or or concrete like the full golf course a lot of the worst path decisions come from a dogmatic policy that yeah every one of our teeing grounds is going to have a path next to it that's a dogmatic policy that doesn't look at the situation alongside each tee and make a decision on a tee by tee basis whether it actually needs something you know and you bring up tees as well obviously um in addition to potentially having a little picnic on a tee, I know you're keen on um, opening opening up the tea boxes of of, of Sydney to uh, to uh, families and and people to to enjoy the space, which I think is is very uh, is a very good uh, suggestion. But just in terms of presentation of teas, um, are you a minimalist in terms of height, or do you like lots of knickknacks and gadgets and ball markers and ball washers and sticky up things and so on and so forth around either a first tee or any other tee on the golf course i i think you know the answer to that that i i, I think you can have the minimal amount of stuff on a tee um including not elaborate tee markers just sort of humble little things that that show you where you should peg it up and distance and a whole number do you really need anything more i don't the old course does this great and if it's good enough for the old course why isn't it good enough for every other course that orders horrendous tea markers and elaborate uh, signage and things from some catalogue. The old course has very simple markers on the tees and you just, you know where to peg it up and you, that's all you really need, isn't it? I don't know. Tees are interesting or undervalued parts of the game really because that's where I think most of the conversation in golf occurs on tees. By the time you're sort of out into a hole, you're off on your own adventure and people don't even sync up that much on the green, I think. Like, everyone's doing their own thing on the green and moving off the green at different pace. And 
tea's the one place on every hole where everybody in your group congregates and it's a, it's a little social celebration each hole I reckon on the tea and teas aren't appreciated for that I think in terms of I know you enjoy a nice logo as well having uh, previously uh, written on if I can recall championship logo and uh, there was one other which I just for the life of me escapes me what do you like in a nice golf logo well yeah it gets back to our previous discussion about marketing of golf and just what a poor job a lot of golf clubs do and that carries straight across into golf club logos and i think who was it brian schneider or somebody recently said that every logo that he's ever seen in golf in australia is horrendous and it's hard to argue with that i'm not sure i might be misquoting him slightly but i didn't take the slightest offense because i really struggled to come up with any sort of defense for australian golf clubs and their logos most just go to the cliched sort of uh, some sort of monogram or wings or something. I don't know. It's, there's a lot of cliches in, in golf logos and a lot of very poor graphic design. And if there was ever a style guide attached to the logo, it's never been obeyed. They just shove it in all sorts of contexts, which doesn't flatter the logo or the brand identity of the club. Again, I think this just comes from the golf clubs being small organisations with somewhat high turnover and it's hard for somebody to be a stewardess like to, to steward the brand through decades and keep and maintain it you know a club like Marion does it well with its logo is that a good logo though yeah I mean it's good by golf course standards but it wouldn't be a very good corporate logo it's a little bit overly ornate and complex it's just it's a good piece of symbolism but you know the the wicker basket device is an interesting standalone thing, but incorporated into the logo, it's a very ornate-looking logo. It's just distinctive. I think that's why we like it. But with the critiques of logos, I'm I'm actually I think I'm a much better critic than I am creator. I find it really easy to poke fun at things that deserve to be made fun of, and I think that's why I like doing these movie reviews as well because I've got enough of an understanding of the creative process and have done enough of it with mixed results that I understand the struggle and (laughs) I understand what the creator of something has gone through to arrive at what they've arrived at and I can see where they've cut corners, I can see where they've their skills haven't been up to the task and I can I think I can provide a fairly coherent critique of those things. It doesn't mean I can do it myself. Um, I, I think it's uh, it's a legitimate thing to be a better critic than you are creator. And uh, I do enjoy poking fun at things that deserve to be poked fun, or fun at. And I think the ridiculousness of the player's logo is something that deserves to be made fun of. And I might have done something on the, the match logo as well, which was ridiculous. I'd like to do a lot more of those, but they actually take a lot of effort to research and study them. And they're just purely for my own enjoyment so there's they're not really getting published anywhere significant except they just i just put them on my blog but they take a lot of research and a lot of time to draft up those logo critiques so i'd like to do more of them but i haven't really got the time you seem to be uh, actually sashaying towards film reviews or movie reviews for the cuff australia magazine which is uh, which is interesting i have read parts of your reviews that have been posted to twitter needless to say 
the Golf Ireland, sorry, Golf Australia magazine isn't available for, for purchase in Ireland unless I subscribe to it. So uh, maybe that's like something I should do. Shame, shame on you for. No, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Your your co-host on Good Good, Rod Murray, has a recurring joke at, at your expense where he refers to you as, as working media. <laughs> in truth, I think you resemble that description as a somewhat sporadic writer. It must be recognised that last year you won an award from the Australian Golf Media Association in the best long-form story category. The article was entitled Breaking Bad at Bondi, which I believe appeared in Caddy magazine, the brainchild of Will Watt. What can you tell us about the diggers at Bondi laid out on the cliff at the northern end of Bondi Beach? Mm. Yeah, Bondi Golf Club's a kind of a special place. Um, and and also a really unspecial place. Like it's the one of the most plain tests of golf you're ever going to encounter. But it's in such a spectacular location that it can't be ignored. And I, look, I've lived in Sydney for thirty years and went to school in Sydney before that. For you know, so most of my life I've been in Sydney. And I was aware that there was a golf course up on the north head of Bondi, but I never thought it was worth going to visit and I'm, I'm right in a way but I'm also really wrong it's um, very very short nine holes and it's dusty and tiny greens but it's also one of those places that hasn't had enough money to ever stuff it up so it's, it's just got these very simple features in the ground but they, they're kind of sporty and the ground's kind of firm it's actually rocky, if truth be told. It's not really a sandy site, even though it's by the beach. It's clifftop golf. And the property, it's, it must be... I can't imagine there's a more expensive piece of ground anywhere in the world than Bondi for a golf course to be. At Bondi Beach, one of the most prized pieces of property in Sydney, which is one of the most expensive cities in the world to live in, with some of the highest property prices in the world... It, it may it's it may be the most expensive property uh, city in the world as far as I'm aware. It's extremely expensive here to buy property, and there you are with this incredible piece of coastline dedicated to a really ordinary golf course. <laughs> so I find that intriguing, but it's a product of its surroundings. Bondi, it's a very cosmopolitan sort of place. It's kind of grungy in a way. It's got a real beach culture about it, and um, they're very very loose with rules. The dress rules at the golf course are come as you are, you can wear what you're comfortable in. And that's what triggered the idea for the article. I thought to myself, is there a more subversive sentence in the whole of golf than to say, wear what's comfortable, there are no rules at the course. Most golf clubs' heads would explode if they published that on their website. Uh, And yet there it is at Bondi. Some simple words that sort of go against the institution of golf. And uh, I thought to myself, I'll go and see what that's like. And I, I had had been there before, but I went with fresh eyes with my camera and went and interviewed a bunch of golfers and got far more out of it than I ever imagined. And it all came from the golfers. They gave me the lines. Every single one of them said, uh, you know, I, I just asked some simple questions. What do you like about Bondi? Why are you playing here? And every single golfer I, I encountered said, you can get on. That was one of their main things. It's a place where you can play any day of the week. Anybody can get on. And 
the other comment that somebody left me, I, I got a lot of good material. And then as I was just about to leave, I saw a bloke who was walking off the ninth. And actually, he was walking off the course from about the seventh or something. And I said, oh, you're giving up, giving up for the day. And he said, oh, no, I'm just going to go up to the clubhouse, which is the diggers. You mentioned there's a club called the Bondi Diggers, which serves as the clubhouse for the golf club. It is sort of a, a restaurant and a, um, I don't know what, how to describe it. It's like a RSL club, like a retired servicemen's club in Australia. And uh, it's got a very good view. It's a nice place to be with cheap food and good beer. And the guy said, I'm just going to go up in the balcony there. And when there's another opening in the field, I'll just go back out and play a few more holes. And I said, oh, that's, that's good. So what do you like about playing here? And he said, nobody cares if you're shit. And I thought, yeah, that's, that's great. And I, I closed the article with us. <laughs> you've, you've given me the perfect close the article. So it was wear what you want. There are no rules. You can always get on and nobody cares if you're shit. Those are all sentences that were given to me by the club itself and by the golfers who are out there playing. And I don't know that you could get a better set of sentences to sum up public golf and everything that's good about public golf. And, uh, yeah, that, that sort of was embodied at Bondi. And, you know, listening to yourself and Rod on the Good Good Golf podcast, you know, you mentioned Black Access Golf, obviously, Bondi. And through the, listen to you, the, the two of you, I think I've heard you speaking about this as well, that actually doing the pod has opened some doors to ideas and topics and issues perhaps perhaps you might not have understood or even been aware of previously. You know, it's sort of feeding back into that eyes up mentality in relation to golf. And, and obviously municipal golf is the bedrock for all golf, really. I mean, public golf appears to be under some significant pressure, both in Sydney and Melbourne and farther afield in Australia. You might just tell us about the ongoings at Moore Park in Sydney, where I believe the city's mayor, Clover Moore, seems to have, have a bee in her bonnet about potentially looking to take nine holes off the golfing public uh, at one of the busiest golfing venues in Australia. Mm. Yeah, Moore Park is an incredibly influential golf course in Sydney and I think an underappreciated, underappreciated asset to golf and to just Sydney in general. I, like I've, I've travelled a fair bit and I don't know of too many major capital cities around the world Sydney's not Sydney's the capital of New South Wales, just not to offend people from Canberra. Um, but major cities throughout the world where there's such a quality golf course so close to the central business district. And Moore Park is a quality 18-hole golf course. Um, and it's on a good piece of ground. And it could be a lot better. It's typical of a lot of Sydney golf. It could be a lot better. But as it is, it's superb. Is it a great golf course? No, and great's an overused word. But it's a surprisingly good golf course, very close to a major city's CBD. And I can't think of too many cities around the world where that exists. And you ask yourself, is that is it getting a lot of use because of that proximity to the city? And the answer is yes. It's probably one of the busiest golf courses in the world as well. It does... I think some of these numbers might might bamboozle international listeners, but... Moore Park, I, I think probably last year did over 100,000 rounds of golf, which is astounding. Like, it, it's sun up to sundown. There's groups of four going off every seven minutes, and just that, that place is just buzzing nonstop. 
365 days a year. It take, it's a lot of golfers going out consistently every single day to get to 100,000 rounds of golf a year. And not only that, along the theme with Bondi, you can get on. So it's a lot of people's introduction to not just golf, but to a good golf course. And that makes it incredibly influential. Like all of those people who play at Moore Park get to experience something that is, you know, it's a big 18-hole course and a proper test of golf. And that leads to people seeking out memberships where they can get to enjoy that experience every week with a little less tea time pressure. So in that way, I think it's one of the two or three most influential courses in Sydney and maybe and probably the most influential course in Australia in terms of growing golf and as a feeder for people to find their way into golf club membership. You know, there's another couple of courses in Sydney that fit that profile. North Ride is one. People can get on and it's a proper 18-hole course. And Eastlake is another one. It's a proper 18-hole proper course and you can get on there. That's probably it. Oh, those are certainly probably the biggest three. And that's where I played for a long, long time before I joined a golf course. A lot of people have a similar experience to me where they, they play golf as a junior somewhere. They drift away from the game, but they still find time to stay in touch every now and then by having a social game at one of these courses where you can get on. And then eventually when life affords them the opportunity, they can go and join a golf course. And, but yeah, Moore Park, East Lake and North Ride were the way I stayed in touch with the game through my sort of 20s and early 30s before I could sort of join a course again. Is it under threat? I think Moore Park's out of the woods. I, I'm, I'm not sure on the latest. I mean, it's always under threat. I think it should always consider itself under threat, <laughs> which is the mistake public courses make here is that they don't, they don't act in their own defence until they're actually under threat, until a council comes in and says, we've got plans to take away nine holes from you or to, to bulldoze the whole course. So... That's uh, yeah. That's that, that's my understanding of the current state of affairs at okay. Moore Park. From from one end of public golf to perhaps the other end, which is obviously just saying a little something about golf rankings. I understand you're on the Golf Australia rankings panel, which must enable you to get out and see some new golf courses or revisit uh, old favourites. The golf magazine ranking list in the US is often cited as the definitive list from a worldwide perspective. In his introduction to the most recent rankings in 2021, head writer Ran Morissette, who you mentioned earlier on, endeavoured to define the qualities that have led to success in, in the most recent list in 2021. Design themes from the golden age of architecture with strategy playing angles, enjoyment, creativity, stemming from bouncy bounce golf are the attributes our writers are looking for. Courses that embrace short grass and give the player room to navigate based on their game strengths fared better than cramped courses choked with wrist-wrenching rough that necessitates looking for lost balls. How near do you think Rand gets to what you're looking for in a golf course? Uh, yeah, pretty close, but I, I think there's another aspect to throw in there in that geography is destiny and there's some courses where the geography is ideal for that description of golf and that description of golf unfortunately is almost impossible to implement in certain parts of Sydney for example and, and that's probably common all around the world and we like to have golf courses everywhere these days 
we don't just sort of seek out the very best land for golf and then put down that style of golf, which is, uh, look, I, I, I agree with everything you said. I love that form of golf. But if I really get to why I like a golf course, no matter where it is, it's that it's appropriate for its geography. It's the right type of course for where it is. It's true to its location. That, that's what I probably look for in a course above all else. Um, and yeah, the, the rating, being a member of that rating panel for Golf Australia magazine doesn't really afford too many playing opportunities, to be honest. Um, you've still got to sort of travel and set your games up. And more often than not, I don't know if I'm too embarrassed to ask or I just feel like it's a bit of a wank to ask, but I don't, I don't ask for... Well, I don't even introduce myself. You're not. You, we, in fact, we don't ask for any sort of a discount or anything. And I explicitly don't. I, if I ever am writing a letter to introduce myself to a club as a panelist, I explicitly say that I'm. I don't want a, a, an FOC or anything. But more often than not, I'll just book around by whatever means I can. Not not write a letter and just go and see what the course is all about. And uh, I try and fit in golf around trips with work where I can I'll, I'll take a day off before or after the trip and see what golf is around the region or if there's a weekend that I can fit in around a, go- a business trip I'll, I'll play a bit of golf when the opportunity arises and that gets me just enough golf to stay on the panel <laughs> I think we've got a certain quota that we've got to meet to, uh, to stay on the panel and I, I only just really scrape in every year just apropos your submission of ratings for the Golf Australia magazine, I'm just wondering if Brendan James, the editor of the magazine who looks after the uh, the top 100 ranking list, does he ask you in any particular manner or are you using any particular criteria to utilise for the, the ratings process? Uh, yes, he provides some guidelines um, of, of what we're looking for. Um, I don't, don't recall them off the top of my head, but we've got an information sheet that gives us some pointers of what we should be looking for in a course, but he's also, uh, and I don't want to don't want to speak for Brendan, but he's he's looking for some diversity of opinion. Like our, our panels, sort of handpicked, and I think each person is picked for what they're bringing to uh, what perspective they're bringing to it, and uh, he he welcomes people who would appreciate different aspects to a golf course that I would appreciate and. But there's certainly, you know, probably more than one person who shares my views on, on some of that, uh, on, on what I go to a golf course. But in the end, our scoring system is more or less we just rank the courses that we've played. And the overall ranking is like a master ranking of everybody's rankings, if that makes sense. The, the points are defined by the positions that everybody put them into their own individual lists. Uh-huh. Gotcha. Mm. There seems to be no end to the golfing pies that you appear to have your fingers in. In May 2022, you were at centre stage in organising a trip to Bernbuchel in Tasmania for the Golfers Alliance. Your website states that the Golfers Alliance is a community of golfers who are passionate about golf course architecture, agronomy, inclusion, public golf, independent golf media, environment and sustainability. It's a community that advocates for the game on important issues, working together to tell golf's story. That sounds like a convention of golfing snobs, or at the very least, just the remaining listeners to good good. Yeah, what a bunch of wankers. Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> I missed the trip, unfortunately. What did I and the listeners 
miss. It, it was a great trip. Like I, I, I wanted a. I have no work excuse to go to Barnboogle, so I, I needed an excuse to go to Barnboogle, and organising a, a golf trip was a great excuse. And I was very fortunate to know Mike Sigreaves, who organised the trip, did all of the hard work in organising the trip, and is a golf travel agent. And his, his company is actually called the Golf Travel Agency. It's always good. If you can get the obvious name, you should take the obvious name when you're naming a business. And he's, he runs the Golf Travel Agency. And he's able to get you know, good rates. He's able to get wholesale rates to Barnboogle and book out the whole thing. He's actually, I think, the biggest whole, uh, biggest retailer of Barnboogle packages in Australia. So he has a great relationship with with the resort and uh, we're able to get a really good rate to basically book out the whole thing. There's two types of accommodation, well, there's several types, but there's accommodation at Barnboogle Dunes, which is these cottages and some villas and things. And there's a hotel at Lost Farm. We were able to book out basically every piece of accommodation at the Dunes side of the resort. And it was up to us to then sell all of that. So we promoted it a little bit, just like a few weeks, and we pretty much managed to sell the whole thing out. And that was very satisfying. I think anybody who has organised a trip, I think somebody said this recently on Twitter, it might have been one bearded golfer. He said, everyone's very enthusiastic about going on a golf trip until it actually comes to committing to going on the golf trip. And we found that a little bit, but when we you know, put the invoices in front of people, they all paid them. And so we got everybody confirmed, all, you know, confirmed bookings. You know, a couple of people might have had work things that they had to cancel, but we managed to fill those spots anyway. And we had a great time. They're really different. Like Very few of the people, I think, who came in the end were probably listeners to the podcast. We had a bunch of different groups. You know, I, I think a lot of the little groups within the group that came might have started with somebody who's a listener to the podcast but then they brought a bunch of people who had never listened to the podcast don't listen to any golf podcasts aren't in to that stuff at all they just wanted to go on a golf trip and what a great place to go and i think for those people that's probably what it was all about really because they we we had the whole of cdp design there oh except for frank pont but we had you know mike clayton mike devries Lucas Michelle and Urien Vandervaart there and uh, Will Watt came along and from Caddy Mag who you mentioned earlier and Peter Toogood from um, uh, who helps CDP yep. and uh, Phil Hill the greenkeeper, uh, the head greenkeeper at Barnboogle as well all generously contributed their time we managed to you know, direct some funds to some of the people who we had come along which I think was great because a lot of people I think expect that certain people in the golf industry just do stuff for free and we didn't want to uh, have that be something that we were asking people to do. So we either asked for a very small amount of people's time, which was enormously appreciated, or you know we, we paid what we could to have some people come along and I think the experience was all the better for that everybody who came was extremely generous with their time and with the activities that we organised so it wasn't just going to play games of golf it was fireside chats and mixing like you know playing a few holes with Mike Clayton 
and listening to Mike DeVries at dinner and being introduced to Lucas Michelle and Will Watt. And, you know, that, so those were hopefully special experiences for some of the people who came along. And any additional plans for a follow-up event in 2023? I would like to. It was it was a lot of organisation. As you said, I've got my fingers in a lot of pies and there's a lot of work to organise. But I'd like to. I would, we'd like to maybe think about another location, maybe uh, the Mornington Peninsula and play a little range of courses down there. Um, accommodation's a little bit easier there as well. Or, or Cape Wickham, but there, there's very limited accommodation at Cape Wickham. So uh, there, there's a couple of ideas you know bamboogle again <laughs> it's nothing wrong with that going there year after year is one of the joys of the place so well, it only took you how long to get there the first time oh uh, yeah too long over certainly 12 mm-hmm. years or something i don't know when whenever the first course was built. so my first game was there 2019 or something i think i'm not sure but mm-hmm. uh like i said i only really travel and play where i've traveled to work so this uh, i'd never had an excuse to go to Barnboogle Dunes until I had a you know a deal that was sort of too good to refuse. So um, that was that was the and catalyst for my first fun, trip. Funnily enough, er, ever since you've been looking for an opportunity to tag work onto <laughs> onto the trip to Arnsterstone and Bridport, I'd imagine. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, um, but yeah, no. Honestly, the opportunity probably doesn't arise to to legitimately have work down there so um, yeah I, i'm always going to have to contrive something i think no no for sure look at I've, I've kept you long enough we'll get into the last two questions and many thanks once again for your time as you and, and all our returning listeners will know uh the firm and fast podcast episode conclude with posting two of the final questions relating to your golfing bucket list and some reading recommendations so we'll get into bucket list Please let us know what five golf courses or destinations are currently on your bucket list, why they appear there, and when you hope to scratch them off. Bear in mind you have, or you can interpret that question however the hell you want. Yeah, so I, I've given this a bit of thought. Like I, all of the, all but one of the places on my list here are places that I've already been to, but I want to go back to for various reasons. Well, and I think that's within the rules of your your uh, little. Absolutely. Royal Melbourne. You make them, we make them up as we yep. go along anyway. Uh, Royal Melbourne is there. You know, I've been lucky enough to play Royal Melbourne several times, but it's the one course where, you know, the moment you're off the course, you're scheming about how to get back on. That's the key thing for me for Royal Melbourne. I'm compelled to find another way to get back onto it the moment a round is finished there. There's certainly great golf courses that you play where you're just in, you've done it, you know, and you're, you're in no rush to like get back. You certainly accept an invitation to go back, but you're not really actively trying to find a way to get back there. But Royal Melbourne, I'm always up for a game there. It just it's just such a superb. Everything about it's so great. Royal Copenhagen is one I've spoken about a couple of times in the podcast, and it's one. It's a. I think it's a really special place that nobody has heard of, and you know I think amongst Danish golfers. It's it's this property up sort of north of Copenhagen, and it's effectively public land. I think it it's a, some royal hunting grounds or something like that. But it's a multi-use, you know, public facility in in an incredibly special-looking piece of countryside. Fantastic rolling hills and loamy sandy soil, and native grasses and just a 
big open playing area. It's a huge golf course, but really firm ground. Definitely Rand Morissette, bouncy bounce type of territory. And despite having the royal moniker, incredibly unstuffy place. It's just a very normal sort of membership and a real tangible sense of gratitude for having access to this amazing piece of ground. And very old design, unknown designer, some unknown Scottish designer. It's a very old course. It's casually referred to as course number one in Denmark because it was the first golf course in Denmark. And it has uh, an element of that randomness of the old course about it where it, it probably benefits from not having been conspicuously designed because it, it, it's got an element of randomness to the elements that you see out there. Um, I just love it. I, I wish I could get back there. That's a really special place. Um, next on my list is Myopia Hunt Club, which I haven't played, but it's got the quirkiest name for a golf course, I think, in the world. I don't know. Is, can you think of a better one? No. I'm a sucker for a quirky name, and Myopia Hunt Club is very quirky, and the golf's really good. I like Friar's Head. That's, yeah. that's kind of quite a nice Yeah, thing. that's good. I mean, that's come about from like a marketing brainstorming sort of session, though. Like they've, you know, they've come up with that. It's a modern construct, that name. Whereas Myopia Hunt Club is obviously a much older course and formed out of literally a collection of people with that medical condition of myopia and I don't know, some common interest in hunting or something. I don't know, I don't know exactly the history of it, but it's something as bizarre as that. Like, and uh, what a fantastic name for a golf course. So, and yeah, it's a good golf course too. North Berwick, it's, okay. it's my favourite links, probably just ahead of the old course. There's plenty of links that I haven't played, which, which might take that number one place in my heart. But right now it's North Berwick. You know, I just love every aspect of that. I think it's 18 unique holes. It's, a, it's a, an asset to the game. And uh, yeah, it's, it's just peerless in my view. And the last one I'd put on my list would just be Maitland, where I grew up playing golf. I probably played thousands of games of golf at Maitland as, as a kid. From sunup till sundown, we just used to go round and round and round. And our house was just near the ninth tee, so my mum would basically know when we were coming around and she'd leave a couple of cans of Coke out for us at the tee. And that would sustain us for another 18 holes. So, or we'd you know, pop in the clubhouse and get a, a pie or something. Just that endless, those memories of those endless days, just going around Maitland is something I'm very nostalgic for. It's probably changed quite a bit, a good 15 years, I think, since I've been to Maitland. As I said, it's got horrendous concrete paths in there now. But nonetheless, I'd, I'd still, I'm sure I'd enjoy it. Maybe that would be where I'd play my last ever game of golf because that's where it started for me. So, yeah, you know, I do love Maitland Golf Course. An honourable mention probably to Newcastle Golf Club because it was very influential in my early understanding of golf. And another honourable mention for Frankston Golf Club in Melbourne, which I think should be the model for every golf course in the world. For people who don't know, it's... The Millionaires Club, yeah. The Millionaires Club, but contrary to that reputation, like it is super exclusive. You've got to be invited to be a member there and the likes of me isn't going to get invited to be a member there. But the members there pay a very modest amount of money and the costs there are extraordinarily low. They pay for a greenkeeper to live on site. The clubhouse has no staff. It's just locked up. It's a beautiful old cottage. And I think the members have a key and they can let themselves in and they can leave some of their stuff there, I think, and bring their best bottle of wine and a picnic and, and just enjoy the facility. 
and just lock up when they leave. And the golf course itself is a nine-hole sandbelt course, which has never is more or less unaltered. It's had some alterations, but it's mostly unaffected from a century of interference that you get at some clubs with with committees and stuff, as we know. So it's a really pure golf experience, and one, there'd be a place to play out your days. So honourable mention for Frankston. Yeah, sounds good. I mean, finally, Adrian, as a well-read individual, you should be in your element with the final question. You might recommend two books, or indeed two audio books, whatever you wish, that the listeners can buy to augment their current golfing libraries and maybe learn something new. I really should say the architectural side of golf so that uh, we can do that next episode of the book club. But I've said it, but you know, I'm, that's not, I'm not counting that as one of my two. I'm going to say the World Atlas of Golf, which we did do as a book club episode. To me, I don't think any book is more effective in inspiring people to develop a love of golf courses and golf course architecture and the stories associated with golf courses. There's something about the formula of that book which just captivates people. And yeah, if the more people you can expose to the early editions of that book, the later edition is loses some of the, the formula that makes it right. Yeah, the early earlier edition is Pat Ward Thomas et yeah. al, isn't it? Correct, yeah. And it's the one with the sort of 45-degree top-down diagrams of the courses, which are all hand-drawn, but beautiful recreations of the colour palette and the terroir of those courses. And then it's, that's associated with some great essays and some amazing storytelling around those courses. So... Like I said, it's an extremely effective book at hooking people on golf courses or exposing them to something that isn't hitting a golf ball but appreciating the playing fields that golf is, is, is on and some of the stories associated with that. So The World Atlas of Golf and a non-golf book. I, I really like... I'm, I'm putting a non-golf book in here as a recommendation for golfers to read because I think boards at golf clubs could benefit from this that they, they should try and view golf through the lens of their own business or through the lens of other businesses because golf, in the end, has a lot of similarities. Like Building a golf course is probably... I, I think a really clear analogy is building a golf course is probably very similar to making a movie. There's a big project managing challenge, management challenge. There's a lot of logistics. There's a lot of you know, managing costs. There's a lot of creativity. In the end, it's an artistic expression. But there's a lot of stakeholders that you need to satisfy and a lot, of, um, a lot of financial considerations to take into account and a lot of constraints in the project of creating a golf course. And the same goes for any golf operation like running a golf tournament or keeping a membership happy at a golf course. If only the boards at golf clubs would take those responsibilities and view them as not something that they are necessarily a fly-by-night expert in, but view them through the lens of their own profession and ask themselves, could somebody do an audit of a listed company if they've only just sort of been introduced to it? No, you know, if, you, know you need to be an accountant. You need to have a degree in accounting and, and so forth. Or just, you know, just apply your own knowledge of your own job. Could somebody write a piece of software like if they just got introduced or they've been appointed to some board to manage a software company? Does that mean they can write a piece of software or create a great software product? No, I, I know they can't. So 
I, I assume the same of what happens at golf courses and the construction of golf courses and the running of a golf club. So I, I wish people would take non-golf analogies and apply them to golf. And so with that in mind, that was a very long introduction to a book that I'm recommending called Adventures in the Screen Trade by William Goldman. I'm really interested in movies. I love movies. And Adventures in the Screen Trade is one of the great books about movies and about the movie industry. And I think there's not a single lesson in there that can't be applied to golf as well. It's famous for things like nobody knows anything. And you know everybody in Hollywood's making it up as they go along. Nobody knows anything. And I, I think there's a lot of that in golf, and it's not a bad thing. People are making it up as they go along. And, you know, that's, that's how the business is done sometimes. But there are certain fundamentals of how you create a, a screenplay or how you make a movie. And that book is good at sort of identifying those and letting, in improving your sort of movie IQ so that you can see certain plot devices or certain storytelling techniques. And, again, the same things apply to golf course architecture you can see certain techniques that are being used to introduce certain strategies. And if you know those techniques, you know when, when the creator is going off script as well and doing something original. So I think taking that learning from the movie industry and applying it to golf is uh, an interesting thing. So it's a good read too. It's just an entertaining read, Adventures in the Screen Trade. You know, I knew there was going to be an, an analogy. We just had to wait two hours for it, so well done. Listen, Logue, that's it. I'm out of questions. It's been a blast. Before you go, you might remind folks where they can hear you, read something that you've written, and also how they might be able to annoy you on the socials if they're so inclined. Uh, probably just uh, on Twitter, at Adrian Logue, and Instagram, at Adrian Logue. I don't post that often anymore, but... Um, when there's something I want to draw people's attention to, that's that's where I'll, I'll put it, whether it be a piece of writing or an episode of the podcast. So the podcast is the Good Good Golf Podcast. We've got a great back catalogue there as well. And that's that's some plenty plenty of listening and material for people to get into there. Adrian, it's been a real pleasure, mate. Thank you very much for your time. Catch you again soon. Thank you, Shane. Many thanks for tuning in. As usual, you can find us online at firmandfast.golf or on Twitter at firmandfastgolf. Please continue to like, subscribe and comment. It really is appreciated. Until the next time, happy golfing.